heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, the show about Bitcoin and Bitcoin pirate ships. Episode 28 for you guys today, I spoke with Aviv Milner. Super interesting guy, has a lot of interesting stories and experiences in Bitcoin, and him and I weren't even able to get through a fraction of uh, his many experiences and different forays in, in Bitcoin in an hour and a half. So hopefully I'll be able to get him back on at some point and we can talk more through some of his history and some of the lessons he's learned in all the different projects that he's been involved in Bitcoin. But today, I think you guys are going to really like this conversation. Aviv has a lot of energy and he's got a lot to say. So let's get to it and I'll come back to you guys at the end. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Aviv, how you doing, man? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to hear it. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you on. Uh, I think uh, you were referred to me by a mutual friend of ours uh, who's been on the show, Ben Carmen, I think it was, that connected us. A uh, really good guy. I enjoyed talking with Ben. He's really sharp. Uh, but he talked very highly of you and said that, man, you've got to get this guy on the show. He's got a lot of interesting things to say. He's been working in Bitcoin for a while, uh, and he's really involved in, in privacy and fungibility and all this stuff. So why don't you start off by telling us your story? How would you get into Bitcoin? How would you end up where you are right now? Yeah, firstly, um, like I said, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, Ben is, is really a cool guy. I had the rare opportunity to meet him in person, which is, is, is rare in the Bitcoin community because it's such an internet you know, space. Uh, you, you see people's handles, but you rarely see them in person. But he's a, he's a wonderful guy and active in the in the Wasabi Wallet project. Um, just quickly about me, um, you know, we talked a bit, you know, before the show, but but I'll sort of re- reiterate some things for the audience to get on page. I've only been in the space for three years. I use the term only. Some people say that's a long time. You know, in my my perspective, that uh, that doesn't seem like uh, you know a long time, uh, but uh, but it is, I guess, in, in Bitcoin time. So. Been in the space for um, uh, for three years. Uh, I started as a math major out of uh, UBC, uh, Vancouver, which is which is where I live now. Um, who had this really deep interest in in, in in mathematics. I liked abstract thinking. I liked to think about logic, um, but I also liked philosophy and economics and computer science and politics. So it was it was all these different things. Um, and, uh, and so anyways, I caught the Bitcoin bug, went on the Bitcoin diet, as Andreas Antonopoulos would say, which is, um, you know, just needing to understand um, how this works. Uh, it's important for, for the audience to un- appreciate that my immediate reaction to hearing anything about Bitcoin was that it was a terrible idea. Uh, it was a terrible idea for hmm. many reasons. Uh, my, my friend um, called me up. Uh, and said, you know, you have to get on this Bitcoin train. And also, it's not even about Bitcoin. It's about all these other coins that are even way more important than Bitcoin. And so my two objections mm-hmm. were, Bitcoin would never work, but altcoins would, would be even dumber than Bitcoin, was my was the first thing I said, like 10 seconds into hearing about this. 
Uh, and I, and I, well, uh, for, so for context, like what's the time frame on this? Like, is this 2016, 2017? Great, great question. It was, uh, it was like winter 2016, uh, uh, 17, right? So it was like two okay. and a half, uh, uh, yeah, almost three years ago at this point. Um, so things are heating up, but they're not quite at the frenzy it, yet. Oh, exactly. So if, if you're looking at it from okay. the context of, of where is the, the heat and the frenzy, uh, we're at, you know, we're at uh, 60% of the way there, 50% of the way there. So now a hmm. lot of people, especially at university campuses, are, are, are there's buzz, right? And, and that's why someone like myself would be told from a close friend about it because uh, that, that's where we were. And and. I'm guessing you had heard about it before, at least in passing, obviously enough to have formed opinions about it because you already thought it was dumb. Yes. So um, I, I heard about it in the past and I remember because I, I, I make jokes all the time. I remember making a joke. Uh, I actually met the guy who made the video, What is Bitcoin? Like the, the biggest like five minute explanation of what Bitcoin is. He actually w- walked into mm-hmm. the, 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 the store where I sold kiteboarding equipment in Vancouver back in 2013 mm-hmm. and he was, he told us, uh, he told me and my manager, he said, uh, my first Bitcoin video just went viral. It has like 50,000 views. Now it has like 2 million or something like that. And, uh, and I remember telling my manager as a joke, I was like, uh, I was like, this guy's Bitcoin, you know, he's probably buying kidneys from China or something. So I made mm-hmm. some, some joke about, um, about, you know, something dark black market type type thing. Um, but really that was it. It was just a meme. It was like, it was just a hint of, uh, you know, I couldn't say a word about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. So, um, uh, so at, at this point it's, 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 you know, the bubble is starting to pick up. I tell my friend it's, 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 it's a dumb idea. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in the last year and a half of my, of my math degree. And, uh, and so I, st- I go online and I start reading about it and, and, and I love, to, to prove you know people wrong and I, I I like skeptical inquiry you know you know being proving someone else wrong confronting ideas um, uh, and mm-hmm. so I thought I'm gonna go and find out how this is just the dumbest idea ever and just show my friend that he's an idiot so uh, I went online and I started asking a bunch of questions and I kept getting answers that were really uh, clear and concise and not the kind of answers you would get if you were asking about Amway or some MLM Ponzi. Mm. Um, the kind of answers that were prodding me to learn more about computer science and distributed systems and, 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 and most importantly, distributed consensus, which was the thing that took me a few months to really grasp uh, and which was the most interesting thing to me. Um, and so, uh, so from there, um, it was, it was, like I said, uh, the Antonopoulos type Bitcoin diet. You know, you just go head over mm-hmm. heels into it. You start learning, you start doing all these things. And I did pretty much every main, like common uh, job or business that someone who's excited about Bitcoin would do um, intuitively. So like, you know, being a broker dealer, um, helping merchants with onboarding, right? I built, uh, my, 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 uh, my, my good friend and I, we built, um, he actually built it because he, he learned a bit of Android development. He built a, a point of sale system, right? And we onboarded some merchants locally in Vancouver to, uh, to accept Bitcoin. And uh, we also helped people uh, in terms of education, in terms of security. And uh, we also helped as broker dealers with setting people up with paper wallets that were really done right and properly had an instruction manual. And I also later worked um, 
for a uh, uh, for a, a Bitcoin ATM company, and I also worked for a Bitcoin forensics company, um, and I was also at the Bitcoin club at the university. So, really got to see a lot of different points uh, of, of of the space. And on top of that, um, uh, like like I was telling you before the show, my buddy and I we actually got some investment money to start a, a hedge fund of sorts. So, um, and, and this was getting closer into the into the Bitcoin bubble was was the uh, was the hedge fund and, and so you know just every different thing you can imagine you know we also helped consult some people that were clearly doing scams right um, hmm. uh, most of the people we rejected um, but we, we we got to sit down with people that you could tell were just uh, not smart and, and we're just we're just uh, scammers right. uh, so we, we had a consulting company so we had all these different things um, and, and long story short, I, I uh, uh, bounced around from, from di- different things and, and ended up here. But I'm just going to note two things, two important uh, things that, that uh, caught my attention um, after the first few months. The first thing was I had a panic in three months before the bubble. So three months, as the bubble's picking up, and I, you know, I went into Bitcoin with really an economic and political agenda, which was which was we can't trust governments, you know, libertarianism, anarchy, those things are more, uh, make more sense. We need to replace the dollar. A, a lot of pretty radical and, and, and big ideas, very global uh, ideas mm-hmm. that I think resonate mm-hmm. a lot with a lot of uh, uh, um, Bitcoiners. But as the bubble started picking up, uh, Bitcoin displayed a lot of its, if its mistakes to me. Like a lot of, a lot of the things that, that, that are, are inherently bad with how it works. Um, was was mm-hmm. made apparent. So, for example, um, uh, people didn't want to spend any of the, the Bitcoin. Like we we went to the Bitcoin club, mm-hmm. we went to merchants. We said, we're going to send you up with p- p- point of sale system. We're going to charge you no fees, zero percent to, mm-hmm. to to accept Bitcoin. And at the club, we were selling goods and, and and food to people who were already at the Bitcoin club. So they had Bitcoin. And what we heard was people saying, "Why would I ever spend my Bitcoin? It's going to go up ten percent tomorrow." Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then we had the congestion, we had all of these different problems, we had turmoil, um, which I'm not going to rehash, but uh, the first intuition I had was that um, a big problem with Bitcoin was stability. And so, really, a lot of my focus for the the year of 2018 was on theories around stable coins. So, from, from, from two months before the bubble to as early as a year ago, I was really captivated with this idea of stable coins because what I realized was that the problems that people were talking about in terms of why Bitcoin wasn't working for the average person for, and, and, and you know, why it wasn't taking over the globe was, was more grounded and not, not things like, um, you know, scalability um, or, you know, ease of use, but really things like, like, like stability, like a, like a, a business didn't want to accept Bitcoin because they would have to sell it, and if they if they sold it right away, you know they would have to hope that there's just no slippage at all, right? So even if there's mm-hmm. no transaction fees, mm-hmm. even if there's no intermediaries, if the price of Bitcoin goes down ten percent in a day or in a week, that's the entire profit margin of that company. So um, so stability was a really big thing. Um, but recently, uh, about a year now, um, it's actually been clear to me that stability isn't the biggest problem. So, so the, the first problem I, I thought was the biggest problem 
was scalability. Turns out that wasn't the biggest problem. Turns out stability was even more important. And then even more important than stability was actually the only thing that makes Bitcoin important, which is censorship resistance and fungibility, right? So mm-hmm. I said to myself, okay, I, I didn't appreciate how bad the problem of privacy was, that focusing on things like stable coins really uh, was was missing an even bigger problem, which is that we have to remember that the real use case for this has been is 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 um, um, is a censorship resistant uh, uh, financial instruments of last resort. So I'll, I'll I'll say this: for the last two years, I've had a thesis about the utility of blockchain, and I haven't been convinced otherwise. And I'm open to having my mind changed. And it really shattered things for me when I accepted this principle. But I think it's done good for me in terms of career which is the only use case I found for anything blockchain. And really when I say blockchain, I'm saying Bitcoin, but let's just, let's just expand it to anything you want to call blockchain, is censorship resistant financial instruments and then in brackets of last resort. That's the only utility I've seen, right? So what do I mean by censorship resistance? What I mean by that is the property that if a person and another person want to send each other money, what to communicate in financial terms, right? They should be able to do that regardless of what any third party, whether it's an individual, a bank, a, a, a financial institution, a government, a, uh, a board of governments, uh, you know, the UN, whatever anyone says, those people can engage in that financial activity. So the first part is censorship resistance. Financial instruments is the second part. And, I, and I, instead of saying money, I like to say financial instruments because it. I think where there is exciting stuff isn't precisely the broader ideas of financial instruments. Uh, for example, stable coins and now uh, the decentralized finance movement, which is in a lot of ways overblown. In a lot of ways, the only good thing to come out of Ethereum, I and mean, that will likely ever come out of Ethereum. And then in brackets at the end of last resort, I say that because um, I want to reinforce why I'm here and. Um, and this is where I think I'm very controversial in terms of my opinion, you know, big deal, you're a Bitcoiner, everything you, you think is controversial. But uh, I don't believe that the, the thing we need to focus on is converting American university students and telling them, like, you should start using Bitcoin. Where I see the utility is, is for last resort people, people who are disenfranchised, who are uh, who have no other way, who are uh, marginalized politically or marginalized based on their uh, circumstances, those are the people that we should be helping. And my thesis just comes down to uh, I'm, I'm a hardcore advocate of freedom of speech, and I believe money fall, falls under that. And so I work to create censorship-resistant financial instruments of last resort. And that is the only thing I think blockchain is useful for that's meaningful. You can tell me that I'm going to put a picture of my dog on the Bitcoin blockchain and it'll be there forever. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to quit my job and start, you know, getting excited about that. But that's the only thing. So I'll leave it at that because there's a lot. Um, and we'll, 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 we'll pick it up uh, there. Man, so I can tell your brain moves uh, about a million miles a minute because you, when you get passionate, man, you just go and go and go. And I love it um, because that passion is, is so common in the Bitcoin community. And when you were when you're going through the list of things that you had done uh, at the end of your spiel, you said, and now I'm here. Uh, but I don't think that the listeners actually know what here is. Where are you right now and what are you working with? In regards to fungibility. Great question. So by sheer accident and by, and by luck, I think, and potentially hard work and, 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 and 
good set of a good thesis. I'm here uh, doing primarily two things. The first thing I do is I work full time for a privacy software company out of Vancouver. This privacy software company uh, aligns with my idea of freedom of speech because the the, the flagship thing that this privacy software company does is enable people to speak freely um, by creating a, a fantastic um, a high-end privacy um, uh, product. Uh, the company I work for is called Sky, Sky ECC. Uh, it's a wonderful, uh, quickly growing company of just incredible people who are hardcore believers in privacy. Uh, hardcore believers in privacy in a way that is uh, that is truly humbling. Um, uh, their flagship product is a is a, uh, a, a, a smartphone device that uh, um, it, it's a SIM card that, that works in a smartphone um, that allows users to connect in an intranetwork of these smartphones um, with 100% certainty that, that their communication cannot be um, uh, intercepted. So think of Signal with the end-to-end -end encryption, but um, taken to the extreme, where you have a dedicated device that lives in an intranetwork, which means you can't even communicate with people mm. outside of that, and the device can do mm -hmm. almost nothing but um, be this a tool for uh, um, for private communication. And it's a worldwide product, uh, but where head, the headquarter is here in Vancouver. Um, so I, That's I, interesting. I, I work in this private software company, and I work uh, as... Um, uh, I think my official title is a business systems analyst um, for for Bitcoin related stuff. So the company here um, needs Bitcoin, uh, uses Bitcoin for no political reason. There's no no one here is gonna is gonna you're not gonna come to the office and see all these Bitcoin bros here. But the company needs Bitcoin because it is a way to transact financially and, and distribute this product in a way which doesn't compromise the user's identity. In fact, a really fundamental part of this business model of the company I work for is we don't know a single thing about any of our users except that they have paid us. <laughs> That's the only thing we know is that they have paid mm -hmm. us money. And so to get that, you often need last resort uh, financial tools like, 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 like Bitcoin and, and then you need intermediaries. And the second thing that I do is I have my own consulting company, which I was very blessed that uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the company uh, that I'm working for was able to support. And uh, that consulting company has only one objective or, or one client right now, uh, primarily, which is Wasabi. Uh, and I'm very happy that mm -hmm. it's our only client. Maybe it'll be our only client for a very long time, and, and that would make me very happy. Um, so uh, the reason why I, I, I work for Wasabi, or I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, uh, thinking about and, and, and being uh, active in the Wasabi community is because I needed it. Because as I was a answering the question, how do I do Bitcoin more privately? I bumped into, you know, like, like reading everything, you know, join market and coin joins and pay joins and, and, uh, and, and address reuse and every, all the literature that exists for privacy, pretty much the best team making the best product for privacy at the moment was Wasabi Wallet. And at first, it was mm -hmm. just inquisitive, and then it became um, a, a, a sort of fixed position. Um, uh, so yeah, that's what I do now. I, 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 work, uh, I work exclusively in, in, in privacy and fungibility, which is a very lucky thing to say. Yeah, uh, man, 
I've got so many notes written here on this sheet of paper. There's like a thousand things I could circle back to, but uh, you know, we could we could probably sit and talk about all of your your ventures in the past for for hours. Um, but probably what people want to hear most about right now is uh, what you're really getting into. So uh, a couple questions for you, actually, though, before we go back to the fungibility thing. It sounds like you were a libertarian before you got into Bitcoin. Is that correct? Um, I got into Bitcoin on a more radical and, uh, and very excited approach to libertarianism, which is that we will do libertarianism without asking permission from the government. And, um, and that mm-hmm. was my excitement and, 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 and you're right. And, uh, um, and it was definitely very libertarian minarchism, anarchism type spin to it. Um, uh, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, a type of revolution, a peaceful type of revolution that was pretty much enabled by the, uh, by the internet, basically, yes. uh, by creating technologies and, and breathing life into them and setting them loose. Yes. Uh, you know, I think of things like PGP and uh, and Bitcoin is, is a great example. I was just talking about this with a guy that I interviewed uh, last night as well. Uh, so, so you already had these libertarian ideologies, and you said that you're always kind of been an economics buff. I mean, I'm assuming that means that you're read in the Austrian school as well. Yeah, uh, de- definitely read a lot of the Austrian school. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, Friedman and Hayek. Uh, um, I, uh, you know, I changed my mind radically many times. I was a communist. I was a socialist. I was a mm-hmm. free market capitalist. Mm-hmm. I was a centrist. I was many, many different things. And now, um, maybe this is just a, a, like mat- maturity, like, or I, I don't know, like, it's, it's, it's wrong to say maturity. Maybe just over time, you kind of get these more nuanced, like, like bits and pieces of everything that, 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 uh, um, that is combined. Uh, you know, like Tom, Tom Sowell, like I love everything that Tom Sowell um, oh, yeah. says. He's great. It's, just, it's, it's incredible. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say buff, uh, in terms of how much I know, but, uh, yeah, I definitely love to talk about economics. I uh, I feel like you're a lot like me in that regard, where you kind of charge headfirst into things and and get really strong opinions really quickly. But you're you're quick to drop those opinions when you find uh, contraindicative uh, understandings elsewhere. Uh, but you just keep going. You just keep charging forward, and you pick up what you like, and you kind of leave behind what you don't. Uh, that's kind of how I am as well. And and you know, it's it's so funny because a lot of the people in Bitcoin are like that, and they, they, they're just trudging forward, and they've all kind of like arrived at a lot of these um, similar conclusions together. Like the, this convergence onto Bitcoin maximalism in the last uh, in the last year and a half or like just in the period of this bear market following uh, the bull run in 2017 that you were talking about. It, it's sort of settled out and once the dust started to settle out, you know, I talk a lot of people in Bitcoin and a lot of them come to the same conclusions about the technology and the economics and the principles of freedom like you were talking about. But they come to those conclusions independently. Like we might share ideas, but a lot of these people come to the same conclusions independently, which is, I think, really, really powerful. And it's a powerful demonstration that we're at least onto something here uh, with what's going on. And I love that the the company that you're working for right now is is working towards free speech. I really want to talk more about uh, that product and and some of like what you guys are doing at the moment. Um, I'm I'm actually curious. Have you are you familiar with uh, Alex Gladstein? Alex Gladstein and the organization he's a part no. of. 
Alex Glass did not. Man, I'd have to, I'd have to look up real quick, uh, what organization he's a part of. But I think you would really like him. You should, you should check him out. Uh, anyway, I, I can't remember the name that of the organization that Alex Gladstein works for, but he is uh, a big champion of, of freedom uh, and, and monitoring um, it's not the, despotic. the Human Rights Foundation? Yes, the Human okay. Rights Foundation. That's what it is. Uh, and they, they basically monitor despotic nation states all over the world and activities that they're engaging in that might be... Um, harmful to freedom and people's ability to have things like free speech and the engagement of commerce. Uh, so I think projects like yours are especially interesting. Uh, maybe not, you know, I think everybody needs it, but especially in places where people don't even have rights to free speech like we do in most cases here in the Western world. Uh, we're, we're very blessed in that regard. Yes, I, I, I agree. Uh, so, so firstly, uh, the work of, of uh, this gentleman looks really cool. I'm, I'm glad to have uh, stumbled onto him. I think I'll have to look into more into the Human Rights Foundation. But to go to your earlier point about many people independently coming to the similar conclusions, um, I think you're right. It's, it's very fascinating. It's, it's fascinating because no one knows the correct answer in advance. Um, and so we're all sort of like evolution. We're, we're, we're coming up with many ideas and then, you know, a couple of those ideas survive the test of time and um, and people mm -hmm. are just sort of grabbing and holding um, and so for example uh, you know uh, uh, so so yeah so you know this Alex Glassian guy I'm, I'm not aware of him and I, I don't know much about the Human Rights Foundation but uh, it really is the chief like I, I, th I think their thesis and my thesis in terms of what we want to spend our lives doing is actually probably the same uh, weirdly enough in that we're, we're really concerned about about uh, about basic human rights, uh, in particular freedom of speech, uh, you know, um, uh, and making sure that that's available uh, to everyone. Mm -hmm. um. So tell me, you know, you said you started out thinking scalability was the most important thing uh, about Bitcoin, and then obviously you did some learning and reading about distributed systems and distributed consensus, and you learned maybe that's not the case. You know, maybe it's not the issue that I thought it was. And, and then you moved on and thought, well, maybe it's stability. Um, obviously, Bitcoin is volatile, and if something's volatile, it can't be a good money. And then you're like, well, maybe that's not a big deal. Um, I, you know, I don't know what your feelings are on that now. But then you moved on to fungibility. So tell me why. Uh, you've gone from step to step to step, and now you're where you're at, and you think fungibility is the most important part of Bitcoin. And you ask uh, really big questions. Uh, I think um, it, it comes to what your intuition about the utility is. So the reason why everybody in 2017 was so concerned with scalability was because everyone intuited that we need this for 7 billion people, right? That that's where the mm -hmm. next two years, three years, five years was all about. It's 7 billion people or 1 billion or 2 billion. That's what it was all about. And so you look at the numbers and you're like, man, those numbers don't add up, at least on chain. Um, and so you start thinking about scalability. And so it's hard for you to think about, like, for example, nobody, um, uh, talked about stable coins when I was talking about stable coins. You can go and read my articles. I have 2,000 claps on Medium from an article written in May of 2018 about stable coins um, that I'm very, you know, somewhat proud of. Um, uh, nobody was interested in, in stable coins at that time because everyone was interested in making a lot of money really quickly. 
Um, and because everyone's thesis mm -hmm. was complete, total global dominance immediately, uh, Bitcoin will stabilize over time. There was, was a lot of really uh, bad ideas. So why switching to stable coins? Well, because what people, um, what, the madness of crowds that, that the bubble uh, resulted in, uh, the, the, the spirit of the madness of the crowds made people not be honest about why people didn't like Bitcoin, right? So mm -hmm. people people were dishonest. Like they were saying things like Visa does 3,000 transactions per second, Bitcoin does seven, we need to get to 3,000. But that wasn't mm -hmm. honest, like that wasn't honest, right? Like if you go to a merchant and you right. say, accept Bitcoin, the merchant, you know, people think that the merchant's concern is that it's complicated. Merchants actually don't care about that it's complicated. People think that it's, that it's, the merchant will be afraid of the association. Merchants don't really care about, uh, they're not really afraid of the association. What merchants care about is, number one, what are the costs to do business in this way, right? And the answer is volatility mm -hmm. greatly, greatly impedes the ability for you to do business. That's way more important. Even if you know, if, if you sell a fifty-dollar bottle of wine, and it costs a dollar in transaction fees, that's actually okay. That's two percent. It's not great, but the fact that you can lose seven dollars in volatility in, in a day, right? That's way right. bigger of an impact. Um, and people don't want to admit that. And, and and it was it was a crushing realization because I was a proselytizing individual. I was very head over heels, and I was trying to sell like food at the Bitcoin club at UBC. And I had hardcore Bitcoiners, people who were like, yes, this is the future. Do you want to buy a dollar, like $3 worth of pizza, three slices of pizza? And they're like, no, because next week I can buy twice as much pizza. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I think it's also rooted in uh, misunderstanding, right? Because at face value, um, you know, you look at Bitcoin and you think, okay, the narrative that you said, okay, well, this needs to scale. Like, we need this to expand outwards. We need it to accommodate more people. And the answer is, seems easy, right? At a glance, it's it's uh, a very shallow understanding yields a bad idea. Okay, well, let's just make this thing scale. Let's open up the fire hose. Let's make the blocks bigger. Um, let's get more transactions churning through this bad boy. And now everybody can use Bitcoin and it's cheap and fast and easy. Um, obviously, you know, you, you know, and I know, and many of the listeners know that that isn't how it works. Um, and, and in, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I, I think you're right. Um, anybody, anybody who's never operated a business that operates on slim margin, particularly like brick and mortar retail stores or like food and beverage and that type of thing, um, wouldn't understand the significance of volatility swings in, uh, overhead because in not just overhead but like in in net in net profit because they have to use that to cover overhead and if they can't cover their overhead then well then they're going out of business and in some towns you know restaurants open and close overnight it seems like so uh, those margins can often be very very slim and while the cost savings that Bitcoin could provide merchants would be good uh, in a Bitcoin world right now it's it that's not what this technology was designed to do um, and, and even as far as the stability piece, right? I mean, you know, we're in the process of seeing Bitcoin emerge as, as money. And that that leads to a series of price discoveries that can include rapid rises and rapid declines. And, and that's got a lot of, to do with, you know, the tightness of the float of the supply and with the, uh, with the 
disinflationary uh, having schedule and, and a whole host of things. But at the moment, right, Bitcoin isn't well suited for paying for a cup of coffee or buying a slice of pizza or any of those things that we'd like to use it for in the future. So you you went through those two pieces and then you ended up on fungibility. And now you know fungibility is more important than those things you thought were so important then, but tell us why. Well, then you start to realize, okay, so, um, and, and by the way, uh, uh, a further problem, so some people will make the argument, um, j- j- just, just before we get to fungibility, um, um, well, hey, you know, um, because uh, the business we did with merchants is we would let them accept Bitcoin and we would just give them cash or a transfer of money at 0%. So the merchant would lose nothing, right? Hmm. Um, but then now we are tasked with getting the liquidity from that Bitcoin, right? And so when you mm-hmm. ask yourself, when a, a Bitcoin broker on the street, how much do they charge to go from your fiat currency to Bitcoin? In a free country that's very liquid, you know, uh, like Vancouver, the answer is 3%. 2% up to 10%, right? You know, ATMs go 7, uh, seven to 13%. Um, but 2 to 5 is is, is, a, is a good place uh, in terms of what you should expect buying and selling Bitcoin on the street. And the answer is why? Well, because if I hold 50 grand of Bitcoin and I'm trying to sell on the street, buy and sell and buy and sell, again, every time I buy and sell, right, there's so much luck with the volatility, right? Like I remember being in coffee shops with people and we're checking the price and the price went up 1% in that hour. Mm-hmm. And now I just made $300 more engaging in that business deal or $50 more, you know, an amount of money that's not mm-hmm. negligible um, with, 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 with that person. And so, so stability means that when I accept money, I don't have to sell it like right away and at the right time. I don't have to worry about those things. Um, but there's another problem which is that um, which is that then I started to say to myself, okay, well, wait a second. Um, um, you know, um, stability is a, is, a, is, a, is a problem, but when I look at last resort people and what they need, as it turns out, they don't actually care about stability um, as much as they care about other things. Because when you start to realize, like, listen, you know, you, uh, um, uh, you know, you start to appreciate the, the, the incredible problems that Bitcoin has. You, you, ask, you, know, you, you go from everybody should use it and you flip that to how the hell does anybody use this, right? It's, you get a whole 180 flip. And being a broker dealer, working at ATM companies, seeing the different niches, I saw people that actually needed Bitcoin. And for them, stability wasn't as big a deal as things like liquidity and privacy because they were doing something that was last resort, right? Because every other method of payment didn't work. This was, they arrived at Bitcoin and it meant that someone was trying to stop them from, from doing that payment. And so now I, I could use some clarification there. You talk about the, uh, the marginalized people groups, right? And and you said that they don't care about stability and, and they care about these other things. But in this instance, who are these people and, and what how are they marginalized, right? Are we talking about people down on their luck in the Western world living on the sidewalks? Are we talking about uh, people in Venezuela who lose their life savings to hyperinflation? What, what are we no, talking about? No, this is another thing as well where we, uh, I think there's been a narrative of making up these ideas of what the use cases are and 
this also doesn't make sense to me. Um, so when I say marginalized, I'm not talking about like a 15 year old kid um, who's super poor in, in, in Venezuela using uh, uh, Bitcoin. I'm really talking about commerce um, uh, between individuals where that commerce is forbidden, right? Um, and for me, what, what I observed was uh, people um, doing things like, uh, you, you know, like, like, so for one, it was larger volumes, right? The people that were using Bitcoin, that were actually users of Bitcoin, they did, they moved 10 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, right? And the other thing I noticed about uh, the way that they were, 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 were interacting is that they didn't want to hold Bitcoin for a long time. For them, it was about, I need this, this thing to use it and then to engage in commerce and then now I can, I, I, I can bridge some gap, I, I can do something. Um, and I met a lot of interesting mm -hmm. cases. You know, the company I work for is a great instance of this. This company, in many ways, is, uh, uh, does better business and reaches out to more people in more desperate places because of, um, of Bitcoin uh, as a technology. Um, and, uh, you know, I met people that, you know, a good example is I was a broker dealer and during the bubble, uh, my partner and I, we stopped, we, as it got close to the bubble, we lost interest in being broker dealers because we met too many speculators, people who, who would convince them after a week to buy a little bit of Bitcoin. And then the next day they wanted to double up and buy more. It was, it was getting awkward. And then they wanted to buy IOTA and all their crap that we couldn't explain and we thought was really, really a bad idea. But mm -hmm. we met people who really needed Bitcoin and those people, um, were you know people who, for example, had gambling debts overseas where um, you know where it wasn't legal to have uh, uh, um, uh, to, it wasn't efficient to have the gambling thing here. So they would ask us. They didn't even want the Bitcoin. They were like, just send the Bitcoin there. Send the Bitcoin to this account, which is in I don't know, like Latin America, so that I can uh, continue uh, my online account there. Um, you know, people who were. Um, yeah, a lot of, you know, doing a variety of things like sending money overseas, um, um, you know, doing business on a larger scale. Um, that's what we saw. I think a really good reference point to what changed my mind a lot, I have to be honest and say this, is um, is the, the podcast called uh, Bitcoin Uncensored. So early Bitcoin Uncensored mm -hmm. radically changed my philosophy about the space. And pretty much thanks to Jen Seth and Krista Rose, um, I... I I got myself way more grounded, especially early Bitcoin and censored. The new stuff, I have to say, is um, I'm so sad to say this, but it's garbage. But the old stuff is just gold. Oh, thank God. Yeah, okay. the new stuff is garbage. <laughs> old stuff is, is, is gold. Like, if you want to know what it was like to be in the bubble, go watch John Seth's shirt off talking about uh, the Ethereum uh, hack, the DAO hack. It's hilarious. Um, okay, yeah. We don't need yeah. to go there. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, um, so the users are people doing last resort commerce. The Silk Road is a good example. You know, people, uh, you know, the Silk Road decreased the amount of violence in the drug trade because it, it allowed people to have a nonviolent relationship with each other where they didn't have to meet. And they could sell things like marijuana, which now is legal, probably where you are and, and, and for sure where I am is legal. But at the time it wasn't legal where I am, probably not where you were, you are either. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that you know overall that's uh, an, an incredibly uh, positive thing. So, um, 
Okay, so marginalized groups here are, are groups that are maybe operating in gray markets or operating on the edges of um, edges of the ability to operate legally within the traditional financial system, or they have difficulty doing so uh, that that so much so that it impedes their business or their way of life in one form or another. Right, that's what you're getting Absolutely. at there. Absolutely, and people people uh, say negative things intuitively about these groups um, and don't understand the market and the, the mentality of someone like myself. Like, for example, who is my competition as someone who works in Bitcoin privacy and last resort monies, right? You know, give me two examples of someone who's my competition. For example, people might say PayPal, might say Visa, might say MasterCard, they might say Cash, right? Right. None of those things. My first thought is like, Colombian drug cartels moving uh, boatloads of cash under tarps, but uh, sure, sure. that's probably so, so cash being you know she's stuffed in envelopes or whatever. Maybe, maybe. But do you want to know the real competition to uh, to Bitcoin? It's it's RuneScape gold. It's it's Call of Duty skins. Yeah. It's it's gift right. cards. Listen to the mm-hmm. Paxful guys. The Paxful guys are wonderful, um, and the Purse.io guys. Listen to them talk about, you know, do you ever ask yourself, you go on Purse, or uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard of Purse, I'm sure your, your, your listeners know of Purse, I don't work for Purse, but it's just a great, go, go on Purse, spend your Bitcoin, get 10 to 15 to 20% off on any Amazon product you want, right? How, how come? I'll tell you how come. Because if I want to get 20,000 US dollars into Nigeria right now, so I can open a factory, so I can use the fact that Nigeria has this um, growing number of people that are getting educated and that want to step up in that economic ladder and that want to make a life for themselves and so want to connect to the Western world and get you know commerce and trade started so that they can improve their lives. The only way, one of the few ways to get U.S. dollars to that country immediately is with gift cards. It's incredible. Like, think about it. I, I, I can mm-hmm. get a gift card into mm-hmm. Nigeria. I can walk downstairs, go to my shopper's drug mart, with cash, get a $500 Canadian or US dollar gift card, send the pin by phone or by email, and I've, and I've literally sent someone 500 US dollars. That is the real competition of last resort money. And that's how we do commerce when governments can't cooperate with each other and establish good financial relationships with each other, right? Right, right. And, and that's absolutely why... Um... You know, now it's common for any type of scam operating on fleecing people through their computers or cell phones or whatever. They're usually trying to get you to go to the store and buy gift cards and send them to them over the totally. phone or, you know, through email. Totally. Uh, iTunes gift cards, Apple gift card or Steam gift cards, how, how whatever. How much cocaine was bought with MasterCard and how much was bought with cash? I can tell you, it's 99.9% cash, right? You know, mm-hmm. when people... people like to discriminate against, you know, RuneScape gold and gift cards and Bitcoin being used to help gray gray markets and black markets and all these things. But just remember that you and I, and almost everyone you know, has used cash in a way that has expanded our freedoms and oftentimes has been a great tool to make sure that we still have those freedoms. You know, I, you know, I, I, I like to make a joke that in Canada, marijuana, um, was legalized, I believe, eight months ago, like very recently. And so it's, it's a weird fact that the amount of marijuana I smoke now and the amount of marijuana I smoked before it was legal 
it just coincidentally is exactly the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's you know so for, for, for and, and that's the reality with people here. Like it's not like people all of a sudden six months ago started smoking weed. Everyone was smoking weed before, and everyone's smoking weed now. Before we used cash. Now we, we have the ability to use a debit card to. Uh, um, uh, to, to, to buy products, although a lot of uh, weed stores are being discriminated against because there's, you know, the regulations aren't there. Um, but other things, like for example, when I was a kid, I, I worked as a 12-year-old and I, I, I shoveled snow. I got paid in cash because that was an easy way to do it. I, I didn't have a bank account when I was 12. I didn't have a way to do an e-transfer. I didn't have those those, those tools. When, um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, the utility in cash is incredible. You know, I, I hired a lot of people. I hired a lot of uh, you know people of, of, of a variety of sorts. You know, doing a small under the table work. Which you, you know, you, have you ever paid someone to mow your lawn? Twenty bucks in cash. Cash has a lot of utility there, and you don't realize that you're mm -hmm. doing it in a last resort mechanism because it doesn't feel that way. Because cash is just this wonderful thing in society, which is very freeing that we all have that we just take for granted. Um, but but mm -hmm. that's really. Um, that's really what I think about in terms of last resort. So, uh, so yeah, cash is just the super successful, like it's globally dominant for last resort, but it's not digital. So right, right, and and they're in the process of trying to transition away from cash and towards digital currencies, uh, quote unquote, uh, basically just entries in a digital ledger, uh, not not in the Bitcoin sense. So. But I, I do have a question for you, and then I really want to move on to the fungibility piece. Um, let's say I'm just a normal person, right? I'm listening to this right now. And you talk a lot about, you know, these marginalized groups and, and gray markets and stuff. But I'm just some normal guy, right? I work a nine-to-five job. I pay all my taxes. I don't do anything illegal. Why should I care about um, this money that enables these uh, externalized groups to function? Great question. Uh, the short answer is a lot of people shouldn't care and won't care. But the way that I would logically convince you is I, is I would say, number one, do you value freedom in particular, freedom of speech, right? You can say, I think, you know, uh, abortion should be legal or not legal. I think marijuana should be legal or not legal. I think voting should be for 18 or older or 21 or older. But at the end of the day, I'm more cu curious about way more fundamental rights. And those rights are freedom of speech, right? The ability that we do not tell people they cannot talk about certain things, right? With a few very tiny exceptions, you know, you can't call for the death of someone on Twitter. Um, you know, do you believe that freedom of speech is important? And as someone, uh, you know, my parents are from the former Soviet Union, um, my entire history is muddled with my extended family being massacred or, or having to conscript in militaries for dictators. Um, if you care about society and you uh, and you appreciate that freedom of speech is important, then one way that you can help, just one way, is you can guarantee that freedom of speech as it extends into finance, right? And you should be excited about working in Bitcoin to, number one, in, in, in a very local sense, to enhance your own freedom, right? So, oh, now I have Bitcoin. Do you want to donate to Julian Assange? You can can't do that in any other way. I mean, maybe now you can, but at, at, a, time, at a different point in time, you couldn't. You know, do you want to donate to someone who might not have a, a bank account? You can't. Do you want to send someone money across the world without having to worry that they're in Iran and you're in Canada or they're in Venezuela or whatever? You can do it. Do you want to have money that only you are completely uh, um, in your own right to hold? That's great. 
But if you don't like, for me, I, it's not even about a local sense. For me, it's 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 do you want to do uh, do you want to protect the rights of, of, of people who are less privileged? Because I, I firmly believe that if you're talking about a Canadian boy at university or a Canadian girl at university, um, trying to push them into Bitcoin to me seems it seems um, it seems uh, like a very low priority on their list. You know, a lot of the freedoms that they have are there, and they simply don't need those things. Uh, a, a good analogy I say is is Bitcoin is Tor. It's it, it's it's on par with Tor, right? Um, you know, do I go around telling everyone to use Tor? No, I don't. I use Tor on occasion when 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 there are some smart reasons to use it. I use Wasabi Wallet, which uses Tor on the back end. But telling a university student use Tor, there's very few reasons for them. You know, like a university student in Canada mm-hmm. doesn't need to hide from everyone what they're saying because the Canadian government isn't murdering or or discriminating against people for basic beliefs. Some people will say, well, if you believe in conservative principles and you're on campus, then your professor will give you a 10% lower score. Fine, okay, those are like, to me, those are peanuts, right? Like, I'm talking about the government putting people on trains. That's what I'm specifically talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just I'm mm-hmm. trying to get a grounded in terms of, uh, of the degree of, of error, right? Tour yeah. is the analogy. Yeah. So, sh- you know, should you be excited about tour? I think if you are, in a, in a, in a, you know, the, the word is a bit weird, but a freedom fighter, you believe in freedom, <laughs> and you have any background in computer science and math, or in something that you can help tour, work on tour. It's, a, it's a, like there are people that spend their lives focusing on working on tour, and they're free people. They're not people in China. They're people that maybe in, in, in Canada, and God bless them, because if, if someone didn't work on tour, we wouldn't have a Sabi wallet, we wouldn't have freedom of speech. Right, so you should be mm-hmm. excited about Bitcoin because you're excited about freedom of speech, and understand that you don't need to convince um, a twenty-year-old a, a girl at, at, at your local university in, in America about this because she probably has all the freedoms she needs. But almost everybody in China knows Tor, and you don't need to convince them to use Tor. You don't need to teach them about VPN. Mm-hmm. You don't need to even tell them about Bitcoin because when they need to get something done, trust me. They will find a way. That's that's kind of the really cool thing about mm-hmm. free markets is that free markets find a way. Free markets are very beautiful in, in that sense, and you do not need to force them at all. So uh, it almost seems like the answer there is you you, at least in the Western world, you know you you don't really need these things at least not at the moment, and you might not care uh, until you do, and then it will matter, and then you will need them, uh, and that sounds kind of silly to say but that's that's the reality uh that you have freedom until you don't and then it's gone uh and and there are degrees of freedom right i mean it's it's not really black and white there's there's encroachments on freedom um but having these systems that enable uh freedom that does that non-discriminatory freedom i think is a good way to put it because and and you brought this up earlier talking about the censorship resistance of these of these gray market marginalized groups and how important that censorship resistance is is because bitcoin doesn't discriminate uh, against your transaction there's no decision that's ever made about whether the legality of your transaction or the um 
authenticity of your transaction outside of uh, the cryptography that that rules the system, right? It doesn't matter whether or not you stole that Bitcoin from somebody and then you sent it on the blockchain. If you have the private keys, Bitcoin doesn't discriminate. Uh, and, and that's a powerful tool for freedom, right? It's, it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and it's a tool that we need because right now, uh, the concern that I have is I look at what's happening in China and it just scares me. Uh, it really does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and uh, I'm sure I could learn a lot from the Human Rights Foundation in terms of what they have, what, what they're observing. Um, but uh, yeah, like uh, when I hear, you know, people, you know, again, a lot of Bitcoiners in the States will say things like the U.S. government is corrupt and the NSA is spying on everyone and, 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 and the dollar is the worst. And a lot of it is, 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 is somewhat true. It's, 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 not, it's not like they're lying. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the beautiful thing that I love about free societies. People complain a lot in free societies. And you might think, why don't I hear complaints about China like all the time? Like if you go to America, it mm-hmm. feels like America is the worst country in the world. But here's a fun fact. Right, America right. is the greatest country in the world, right? It's so great mm-hmm. that you get the freedom to say it's the worst country in the world, right? You, you, you can go mm-hmm. and get a Big, Big Mac for a dollar right which in venezuela a family would kill someone over and you can say god damn it there's, there's gmo in, in it and, and, and it's not 99 cents it's not 85 cents like this like like that is freedom right do you want to know why there aren't medium articles every day about how north korea it sucks to live in north korea and how there's no there's no food in north korea because it's illegal it's illegal to criticize right right so right and, and they don't even have access to those communication networks oh like sure do. sure you know why is it you know you know, it, it's hilarious. Like, like go and, and, and go online and look up uh, ch- ch- a Chinese vacation uh, to Tiananmen Square. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the, the, the funniest thing. Because every um, every comment, I, I, I did this the other day just out of curiosity, every comment is, hi, did anything happen in 1989 at Tiananmen Square? And, and the response is, like, hilarious. They're always, nothing happened in Tiananmen Square. Don't ask questions. And then another comment. Nothing happened in another comment. It was just a regular day in Tiananmen Square. Like every comment is just this hilarious thing because uh, you know you, you can't openly talk about how the Chinese government murdered students a lot, murdered right. students, right? Um, because you can you, you know you can't talk about it. So uh, yeah. Um, Real quick, I want to plug a YouTube channel that I'm really, uh, I, I really enjoy. If you want to learn more about China, uh, it's called China Uncensored, and I would also highly recommend a book series by a guy named Frank Dicotter. Uh, the books are called The Tragedy of Liberation, Mao's Great Famine, and I believe The Cultural Revolution. Uh, that is a, a three-book series, and, and they are phenomenal if you want to learn more about China's transition into communism following World War II and, and some of the cultural implications of that and uh, how it affects the world today still very, very much so. I uh, just wanted to plug, plug that. I think I'm really going to need to get you to send me some, some links because you've been, that, you've been nailing it here, and I think you, your uh, conversations with others have given you a lot of the good sources, so... I just for sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, yeah, they're great. Um, so, I, I, we, we got to come back to the fungibility thing, right? Because this is what you're so excited about now, right? And we talked about all the stuff in the past. Um, 
we went back and forth on a lot of these things, but you're obviously, you care about censorship resistance, right? Because that's what enables uh, the, the reaching or the uh, enabling marginalized groups. Why is fungibility such an important aspect of censorship resistance, right? Because Bitcoin's already censorship resistant. Why should I care about fungibility? Right. So uh, fungibility is one of the, um, the properties we use when describing money. There's a lot of these properties like divisibility or durability, right? Fungibility is the fact that if I have uh, an ounce of gold over here, an ounce of gold over here, you, there's no way to discriminate one or the other. If, if, gold, if an ounce of gold is $1,000, then both of these ounces of gold are worth $1,000, right? And the nice thing is that if someone says, well, that has a fingerprint of a bad man, what you can do is you can smelt the gold, right? And then, it, and, then mm -hmm. and then it's fungible again, right? It's like water, right? There's no way to trace the origin of water, um, which, 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 which is excellent. It, it makes units of these things it, uh, equivalent. So first, let's just, let's just end on... On, on why censorship resistance is the, is not just the the an important property. It's arguably the only like first principle property, right? So for example, Visa and Mastercard are just better than Bitcoin in almost every way, right? I, I, I'm gonna say that, and and, and uh, I'm sure I'm gonna get death threats or whatever. Uh, it'll be uh, no, yeah, I agree with you there. Um, why can't in terms of uh, you know what they what they set out to yeah, do? So, so, yeah, so, absolutely. So let me understand this uh, Visa and Mastercard. Uh, there are millions of Venezuelans right now who are are happy to work, who are uh, have money to move, who would love to use your services, right? Why aren't you available for those people? Why can't I, you know, e-transfer and use Visa Mastercard? And here's why: it has nothing to do with technology. It has only to do with the fact that they're censored. The government said it's there's a there's a sanction, for example. Um, so if you do that kind of business. You will go to jail for that. So the reality mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is that it's it's uh, uh, the only reason that Bitcoin is interesting is that we just win off the off the bat. Like we just won the game right away because our competition is not allowed to enter. Right? We have a complete dominance here. Right? Um, so now, if you realize the only advantage you have is the fact that you can do stuff that nobody else can do. Right? Yes, you can actually move money into North Korea with an internet connection when, when freaking nothing else will work. Then, then, then the next question you have to ask yourself, well, uh, is, it, is it really censorship resistant? And, and the, uh, the, the answer to that is, um, is uh, you know, <clears throat> it is not censorship resistant if money is not private. Um, so, so there's a sort of a triangle trifecta, which is good money requires privacy and requires like fungibility, and those three together need to need to all be in place. Fungible, like you know, if 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 Bitcoin can be traced, and and then individuals uh, start to blacklist in individual Bitcoins, then now somebody doing something, you know, with their Bitcoin now. Um, um, they might not be able to actually do a business deal with somebody else because their Bitcoin comes from a bad source. And we see this all the time. This is why forensics companies exist. Forensics companies exist to work with exchanges to say, hey, don't let that person get liquidity. Don't let that person cash out. Don't let that person trade uh, funds. So that person's Bitcoin has no use for them. That person's Bitcoin is literally useless because they were censored. 
right? Um, uh, and so, because one Bitcoin wasn't as good as, as another Bitcoin because of its history. Um, so, uh, fungibility is achieved when you can guarantee that the history of a, of a Bitcoin doesn't really matter or is so muddled that it's, it's essentially the same as any other Bitcoin. And that's why fungibility is so important. And the fact that we're so far away from achieving like really good fungibility, um, and there's a, there's a debate in the spectrum about that, but it's 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 such an important field that if you're in this space, like you should be drawn to it before almost anything else. Like if, if you right now are in crypto and you are excited about CryptoKitties version two, I don't know how. I don't know how you wake up every morning and get excited. Like I'm gonna enable people <laughs> to to trade kittens without the government. <laughs> you know, it's like who cares, right? Um, fungibility is is is. It's, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a mandatory property. It's, it's, it has to exist. All right. So how, um, how do we solve that problem? I mean, I know, you know, you, you said you, that you've looked at a lot of different solutions and, and we've talked about Wasabi on, on, uh, the BEC here before. Um, is Wasabi the end game? Is, is there anything else that's being worked on? So I think privacy is an arms race. Uh, fungibility and privacy are, is an arms race. So essentially, uh, you have people that create tools to give users more privacy. And you have people who uh, work for uh, like friends and companies that uh, attempt to break those tools. And really, if you, whenever you're on either side, you're actually doing both things, right? So if you're a forensics company, like if you're a privacy geek, then you're building better tools for privacy, but you're also trying to destroy and trying to pick at your own tools to see if there's any flaws. Because remember, a forensics company might not tell you explicitly that they've broken your tools. So you need to try to break your own tools. Mm. So it's an arms race that we, 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 we engage with, um, with, uh, with all the time. Um, so what's the end game? The end game is really, it's indefinite. And, and the way we know we're winning is the fact that every day billions of dollars, or you know, I think it's like a billion U.S. dollars a day in value, is being transferred, and people are succeeding at, at, at engaging in commerce. And we know we've lost when we have a post on on on, on, our, on Reddit, for example, that says, "Hey, my," uh, and this is very unfortunate for me to say this, but my Paxful account. This was a real story that, that got published like five days ago. My Paxful account got shut down because uh, my, my coin was linked to something nefarious, right? That's a loss. Hmm. That is a loss for us as the community. Um, so what's the end game? I, I, really, you know, I really think that uh, things like the Lightning Network are a really strong, uh, really strong tool for privacy, incredibly strong tool for privacy that is very exciting. But on-chain privacy needs to happen as well. So it just, it never, mm-hmm. um, it never, ends, the, the big difference between Wasabi and pretty much every other technique and tool is Wasabi tries to do everything all in one package available with one click download. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like Tor Browser. Like Tor Browser just does everything for you. You don't have to mm-hmm. do the little minutia of, of things. It's just out of the box ready to go. It's working for you. Uh, in particular, uh, Wasabi Wallet is focused on, on, on network and uh and blockchain level privacy it does those things very well and um 
and uh, and yeah, and so the end game is just Wasabi just gets better and better incrementally over time. I, I do want to make a distinction here, and I've, I've talked about this in the past. I actually talked about it with the guy uh, I interviewed last night. So you'll get, uh, listeners, you'll probably hear this a week after the fact. But I think it's important to emphasize because, uh, you know, fungibility and privacy is not, it's not something that you only think about. In, you, you don't ever want to find yourself in the position where you say, well, I'm not doing anything illegal with my money. You know, I don't have any... Um, I don't have any fringe beliefs. You know, I'm not going to get censored. I live in the Western world. I, it's a free country. I'm fine. I don't need to worry about um, privacy and fungibility of, of my Bitcoin. But what you need to consider is that even if you're not concerned about it, uh, the fact that Bitcoin, if, uh, if the tools are not being used to maintain that fungibility, it could still affect you. And an example of that is, is like, let's say you, you open a coffee shop and you accept Bitcoin. And uh, you have some drug trader or something, somebody who was operating on the Silk Road who acquired a bunch of Bitcoin on the Silk Road uh, and the FBI is, is tracing those Bitcoin and, and they know exactly that they're associated with drugs, but they don't know exactly who has them. And they come and take and spend some of that Bitcoin at your coffee shop and they buy a cup of coffee. And then you take that Bitcoin and you try to cash it out through your... Um, your merchant or whoever provides you liquidity back into U.S. dollars, and suddenly your entire stash of Bitcoin is now frozen, or not your Bitcoin, but the liquidity that you had from that Bitcoin that you uh, accumulated after a month's worth of sales is now frozen by the FBI um, because there wasn't respect to the fungibility and the privacy of the network uh, in that instance. And you've done nothing wrong, but you you might get your money back, you know, hopefully if you can explain the situation, but... Um, Ideally, you know, that situation is avoided entirely uh, by by using these types of technologies that enable you to obfuscate that type of history and not involve yourself of it, in it at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think it's there's an even broader point. So you said, you know, you know, why should I care about fungibility? I'm not doing anything illegal. Excuse me. So there are two responses that I have. So the first one is what you said, which is. What if you're just having fun and you're a Bitcoin enthusiast and you you just like freedom? Like I just like, like some people love guns, for example, and they're just like I'd like to have that freedom, that autonomy. Some people, you know, will like to be uh, strong and, and, and do jujitsu, so that they have that autonomy, freedom when they're walking outside. And, and there's all sorts of ways to enjoy freedom. You can be out in nature. I like to do like you know outdoor rock climbing. That's that's it's freedom. It's amazing. Um, and what you said is right. And then, and, you know, all I, you know, I'm just enjoying my freedom, and and then I touch, I just interact with someone without even knowing, doing something completely legal, and now I'm screwed. So the first thing is that is that you can't even enjoy this as a hobby. And the second thing, which I'll say, is that people who actually do need this, who really, really do need this, right? If if people like you and I, who aren't bad actors, aren't here right and aren't aren't adding to the anonymity set aren't aren't uh, uh, providing that liquidity providing that utility you know being on the other end of the trade we actually kill it for for people who do need it as a last resort so uh, so right. when, when, when like like in terms of my philosophy if I want to convince someone to get into Bitcoin it would be freedom of speech and it would be almost like a veganism type argument where it's like you're not in Bitcoin for yourself, like, oh, I'm going to financially be better. Although vegans will claim that it's, it's, it's really good for their, their own their own health, which is was one philosophical angle to approach uh, making that ethical decision. But I want to make the other case that your hobby is in some way or another 
beneficial to the world, right? And that even if you lose a lot of your money over time, you can say, man, I, you know, it's like, it's like I was a vegan for years and I feel like I made some positive impact, you know, for global warming or positive impact towards uh, animal cruelty. There are many philosophical approaches. By the way, not a vegan, but I'm just, I'm just sort of bringing an analogy here. Um, so, you know, you're, you're right. Like, 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 you should, you don't want to have this fungibility problem that excludes uh, every person but the person that absolutely needs it in the last resort because then that person's screwed as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there is something to be said for, uh, you know, if, if the only people that are using the tools that provide and protect privacy and fungibility are the people that are ostracized, um, those tools are going to be a lot more, uh, a lot less effective, uh, which I think was the point you were trying yes. to make there. Um, well, so Aviv, um, we covered a lot of stuff. Um, I've got a whole page full of notes here on stuff that I could probably talk to you about, but I think that we hit a lot of good things there. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to hit on before we started wrapping up this, this talk? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, things can go uh, very deep in many different directions. Um, I think it would be nice to cover a bit more on, on sort of the mechanics of what, what's happening with, with, with Wasabi. And I urge people to look at uh, um, a recent video of my talk in Chicago. Um, which maybe I'll, I'll, I'll I can send you a link afterwards, and you could you could post for your listeners. Um, but it's um, sure. where I go. It's an hour and a half long talk, half an hour explanation, and then an hour Q and A, just answering questions nonstop. But briefly, um, it, if I can, in, in let's say three minutes here, I want to explain uh, what Wasabi is doing, um, um, particularly for blockchain level privacy. So uh, the problem with on-chain privacy for Bitcoin is that every Bitcoin that you have points to a transaction, right? We have a model where all money is unspent transaction outputs pointing to previous transactions that we've done. The, the, mm-hmm. uh, all that Wasabi is trying to do is allow users to have a wallet which lets them engage in collaborative transactions with many participants such that the end result is that the coins you have in your wallet are not easily or obviously distinguished from the other participants that you were engaged with. That's all that a coin join does, and that's all that really Wasabi is trying to do well. So right now we have a lot of coin joins that happen. Uh, two or three months ago was the first ever 100-person coin join, which means you know you have money, you download the wallet, there's no censorship there, there's no restrictions, uh, we have a .onion site. You, you do a coin join, and now your coin points to 100 people whereas before it pointed just to you. And you could mix your coins again and again and again and further obfuscate uh, that, but that's really what um, Wasabi is doing at, 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 um, at the lowest level. Um, I want to urge people to check out the official website, wasabiwallet.io. Um, be really skeptical, and in particular, be you know ask a lot of questions. Um, we're trying to build last resort tools. It's not the right time to be polite about how effective something is. Uh, we have a Reddit, we have a Telegram group. Um, you know, We have the comments at the bottom of this video or just Twitter, whatever. Ask good questions and, and don't feel bad to poke at it, um, especially if, if, if you like solving problems and this is something that makes you curious. Um, it's a work in progress. And the last thing I'll say uh, before you wrap this up is, um, it's just like, who are the people that really make uh, Wasabi Wallet work? I think fundamentally, um, 
someone like, a, uh, you know, Adam has been working on the project for six years. Um, no para 73, amazing guy. Um, the, the other two mm-hmm. uh, CEOs, uh, uh, Greg and Valent are, are, are fantastic uh, guys. They're, they're both lawyers, but really, uh, the David, who is now the CTO, David Molnar and Lucas Ontivero are just really the developers that make it happen. And then the broader community of people like Ben, um, uh, people like my research partner, Yuval, who is, is going to be some, uh, at scaling Bitcoin talking about privacy in, in about three days now. Um, on, on, on work that we, we, we did uh, uh, um, uh, t- together, um, uh, you know, who, who else? I mean, there, there, there's a lot of people and like, sometimes my head spins, but there's like Bitcoin only is a guy who's completely anonymous, but you know, great guy. Um, just to... Oh yeah, shout out Bitcoin only, sponsoring the podcast this Yes, episode. and Max Hillebrand, another great example of someone who's just Max. an excellent person. Yeah, also, also been on the show, lots of great people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, I just want to reiterate that um, good people work on it. And, and if you really want to work on the project, you don't have to ask. You just start working on the project and then you get paid for it after a few weeks. Like just because you, sh- you know enough about the project to make uh, valuable uh, um, uh, uh, contributions and then you just do it long enough that people are like, man, this guy knows what he's doing. And it's, that's, that's how I started and that's how I think a lot of people will start. Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I I love uh, love this community. Love the people that are a part of it. Um, so Aviv, where can people find you if they want to keep up with you or if they want to follow the work uh, that you're doing? I'm not sure if you should follow the work that I'm doing as much. I mean, you you, you know you could. Uh, my Twitter handle is Milner underscore Aviv, I believe. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Um, you could uh, you could go on the Reddit where uh, my name is ironically I love stablecoins, which is hilarious. It's a remnant of, of my past life. Um, you could go on Telegram and find me, but really you should be following the smart people uh, uh, behind Wasabi and just broadly, like more broadly, the the, the really smart scientists that are, are and opticians that are uh, coming up with new ideas for fungibility and privacy um, in, in in the Bitcoin space. Um, uh, I mean, scaling Bitcoin, I think, is a really good opportunity to find out uh, people who, who really care. Um, so I, I would urge you to go there and, and check out the, 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 um, the official website, of course, for Wasabi Wall. Hmm. You're a humble guy, Aviv. I like it. Um, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that there will be people who like what you have to say and, and definitely want to keep up with you. So uh, don't sell yourself short, man. Uh, I'll put links to uh, Aviv's Twitter in the show notes as well as uh, to the talk that he mentioned with me, provided that he sends me the link after the show. Uh, Aviv, any parting words before we go? Parting words? Um, yeah. Um, you know, when you're in Bitcoin, remember, remember there are, are real people uh, who, who really need us. And uh, if you ever forget that, just look at what's happening in Hong Kong and, and realize that... Um, you know, it's fun to, to get rich, it's fun to speculate, it's fun to be nerds and find other nerds that are, are fun. Um, but at the end of the day, um, there's a real opportunity for us to do a good thing. Um, and let's just not overlook that and let's, uh, let's work together um, to, uh, to guarantee some freedoms for, for, for those who, who don't have the kind of freedoms that we have here. And I'll, I'll end it on that note. All right. Welcome back, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to check out my sponsor, Bitcoin Only. You can find them at bitcoin-only.com. 
one of the best places to find resources about Bitcoin, just more information about Bitcoin, different products about Bitcoin, podcasts about Bitcoin, articles about Bitcoin, guides for various Bitcoin activities. Bitcoin only has it all, and it's not going to ever lead you guys astray with information about altcoins or shilling referral links to some sketchy exchange or something like that. So check out Bitcoin only, support them. They've been a longtime sponsor of the show, the guy behind it, really awesome dude. Totally encourage you guys to check that product out and support it and share awareness about it. If you guys are enjoying the show, if you find yourself, keep coming back. I'd love it if you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so you can always know whenever I release new episodes. And give me some stars or thumbs ups or likes or whatever it is on whatever platform you're listening to. All that helps me go a long way to growing the audience of the show, bringing more awareness to Bitcoin and helping getting more and better interesting guests on. You guys can find all of our episodes listed on bitcoinechochamber.com or you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, Podbean, we're on pretty much all of them. You guys can reach out to me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C, with any questions that you might have. My inbox is always open or you can drop me an email over at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. That's all I got for this one guys and I will see you in the next one.